Welcome to another episode of The Watchdog here on Ment Press with me, Loki. As you know, we are covering stories which routinely are ignored by the corporate media. For that reason, we hope that you can support us through Patreon if you are able to. This week, I am joined by the award-winning journalist, broadcaster, and educator, Chris Hedges. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Kareem. Thanks for having me. It's really great to read your new book, Our Class, in which you take both a micro and macro look at the prison industrial complex and the human cost of it. You taught 28 students who, between them, had spent 515 years in prison. And that culminated in the play Cage that you worked on together. Now, in the book, you say mass incarceration is the civil rights issue of our time. Could you just expand for us on that and make clear the ways in which people that are coming out of the prison system within the United States are different from others within the United States in terms of rights, what some have called an almost invisible caste system? If you could expand on that for us, please. Right. So, and this is not unique to the United States. It's also taken place in the UK. Go to cities like Birmingham, Manchester, these formerly uh, industrial centers that have been abandoned by capitalism uh, to create sweatshops in China, Vietnam, Bangladesh, and other places, Mexico, in the case of the United States. So, uh, I would go back to Emile Durkheim, the French sociologist, when he writes his book on suicide, he asks the question, uh, what is it that drives individuals or uh, even collectives, communities, to commit acts of self-annihilation? And he, uh, through his research, and he goes back and looks at all these suicides, which, he, which have been documented, uh, and argues, I think correctly, that it's the rupturing of social bonds. Uh, it's the displacement of people within a society. Uh, so that it becomes impossible for them or extremely difficult for them to actualize themselves, to find meaningful, sustainable employment, uh, to have a sense of place and purpose within that society. And that was actually the focus of my last book, America, the Farewell Tour, where I riffed on that idea and then just wrote about all the self-destructive behaviors within American society that are rampant, uh, opioid addiction, gambling, sexual sadism. I, I went out to kink.com where you can, it's the biggest BDSM operation, I think, in the world. And you could, uh, for money, of course, uh, uh, get a link and order a girl to be waterboarded. I mean, literally tortured. So, um, And so with those rupturing of social bonds, which have been especially pronounced, in urban post-industrial centers, you needed to find a new form of social control. Uh, And what was seized upon, especially in the United States, were militarized police that function as occupation forces uh, within what Malcolm X called our internal colonies and the prison system. So in 1970, there were 300,000 people incarcerated in the United States. 
it's now 2.3 million. It's the largest prison uh, system in the world, uh, 25% of the world's prisoners, although we are only about 4.4, less than 5% of the world's population. So that is a form of social control. Uh, and the entire system uh, uh, works to railroad uh, primarily poor people and disproportionately poor people of color into this system. How does that work? Uh, well, it works because the court system has been reconfigured so that almost no one in the United States gets a jury trial. 94% uh, of the people in the prison system are coerced by prosecutors and public defenders and only spend 10 or 15 minutes with their clients uh, to accept a plea deal. If you go back to the early 1990s under the administration of Bill Clinton, I don't know whether this was true with Tony Blair and Labor, uh, who kind of, kind of paralleled everything, uh, New Labor kind of paralleled everything Clinton did with the Democratic Party. Uh, they decided, and Joe Biden was uh, in the Senate and very instrumental in this, to seize back the law and order issue from the Republicans. And they did that by pushing through these draconian laws, three strikes, you're out. So the third time you're arrested, you can't even get parole. I've taught people who have life sentences and uh, never were charged with a violent crime. Uh, in fact, 40% of the people in the prison system have never been charged with physically harming another person. Uh, then you uh, triple or quadruple the length of sentences. Biden used to brag about how uh, before they pushed through the 1994 omnibus crime bill, only a handful, uh, I think only three or four, maybe less, maybe one, I can't remember, federal crimes merited the death penalty. By the time they were done, it was 51. Uh, then you uh, massively expanded the the physical infrastructure of the prisons. Uh, they gave military-grade equipment to the police forces. So this was completely a bipartisan effort. I, I, I tend to vote from my gut. Um, and after Barack Obama gave that appalling speech to AIPAC when he was running for president, and I've spent months of my life in Gaza, the world's largest open-air prison, I just said, I can't. I, I can't. I don't care if I'm the only person not to betray the Palestinians. I won't vote for this guy. The same with Biden. Half of my students or more would not be in that classroom but for Biden. Uh, and you can't forgive people like this because uh, this isn't just a policy decision. It has uh, disrupted and often destroyed the lives of hundreds of thousands of vulnerable people and their families. Because when you incarcerate someone, in, a, in essence, the whole family becomes incarcerated. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's why it's, I've, I've argued that it is the civil rights issue of our age, uh, because it is a decision by a corporate state to invest not in people, uh, but in uh, systems of control. And uh, it, that has disproportionately affected uh, people of color, especially African-Americans in the United States. And then you asked about the criminal caste system. Well, everything is designed to funnel these people back into the system. Uh, when they're sentenced, they get uh, hit with thousands of dollars of fines. In a prison in New Jersey, you only make 22 cents an hour. And we should be clear, prisons could not run but for prison labor. It's bonded labor. In states like Georgia, they don't even pay them. 
uh, everything, all the work. I used to go, used to go teach and would go past the prison barber shop and there would be prisoners in barber uniforms cutting the hair of the guards, uh, the food, the, the maintenance, the most of the maintenance, so much of the maintenance, the cleaning, everything is done by, uh, the, the prison staff. So, uh, the prison, the prisoners themselves. So, uh, when they get out, uh, they can't pay off these fines. So they'll, 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 uh, they make 28 a month. They'll pull $2. I mean, for instance, I had one student I write about in the book, Lawrence Bell. He's incarcerated at the age of 14 for a crime he didn't commit. He, both of his parents are dead. He's living in an abandoned house. We can talk about him later, but later, but he's stacked with all those fines. After 30 years, he still owes $6,000. Now, if you don't pay those, you can't pay those fines back. You go right back into prison. So that when you, there was a case, I can't remember the name of a uh, a man who was stopped because his headlight was burned out and he ran from the car and the police shot and killed him. This was maybe a year or two ago. Uh, well, the reason he ran is because he had fines. He had those, and there were warrants out because he hadn't been able to pay the fines. Uh, then uh, the uh, system, the, the laws uh, have barred you from literally hundreds of jobs. Basically, any job that requires a license, a plumber, a hairdresser, anything else you can't do if uh, you are an ex-felon. You can't get public assistance. You can't get public housing. Uh, and then, of course, you have the stigma of coming out of prison. Uh, so that's why we have, after five years, a 76% recidivism rate. And they have all of the programs. And I want to be clear, I teach uh, in the college degree program through Rutgers University, but that's funded through uh, Rutgers. It's not a state program. Uh, but all of the, the vocational programs that were once part of prison uh, are gone. They're just giant warehouses. Uh, and, uh, and then lobbyists who make, and I'll make just one more point, uh, the lobbyists who profit off of the prison industrial complex are, are in the state capitals in Washington, make sure that they remain warehouses because that's how uh, they make their money. And so when we talk about private prisons, which we have in the U.S., I don't know whether you have them in the U.K., that that's actually a small percentage, privately run prisons. But in fact, all prisons have been privatized because the services in the prisons, the money transfer services, that's JPay, the Global Telling, the phone services, the food service company, Armark, and constant cases of food, massive amounts of food poisoning because of the rancid quality of the food, the medical is privatized, the commissary is privatized. It has become a multi-billion dollar a year industry, and those people who profit off of the bondage of human bodies, it's just slavery by another name in essence, uh, are, uh, have, have uh, created or structured the system so that those profits will continue. And the important thing which you touched on, which would be great if you could expand on a bit more, is the way in which the Democrats have been able to uh, juxtapose themselves with the open and crude racism of Donald Trump, the we tame the com continent type of discourse, to the aesthetics of very lip service like anti-racism of Kamala Harris and Joe Biden, and then you get essentially what are racist results in a situation where you have non-racist, supposedly non-racist intentions. But as Eduardo Benilla uh, Silva put it, you have profound racism without racists within a system where 
people, black people in the United States account for 13% of the population, but yet make up 40% of the prison population. If you could go into a little bit more that trajectory of how you got from that around 200,000 people in prison in the 70s, I think it was to around 2.3 million today. And what was precisely the role, not only of Joe Biden um, within Congress, but also Kamala Harris in a more nuts and bolts intimate way? What was the involvement of these two figures in the prison, the development of the prison industrial complex? Well, it's not accidental that the rise of the prison industrial complex coincided with the neoliberal policies that deindustrialized the country. They, 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 they uh, rose in tandem, completely in concert, uh, because, of course, these people were dispossessed and they had to be controlled. Uh, and since the social bonds, the ability to find place within the society was denied to them, then, like all tyrannies, you turn to prisons and militarized police who can kill with impunity. Three people are killed by police in the United States every day. The police will argue most of them are armed, but upon investigation, uh, uh, that's often uh, a lie, as many of the uh, very uh, prominent cases that have been captured by video have exposed. Um, so yes, it's it's what uh, there was a book a few years ago called Friendly Fascism. Uh, it's rhetorical on the part of the Democrats, uh, but the policies themselves uh, have buttressed and expanded the institutional racism that are designed to keep the poor poor and keep the marginal in bondage. Um, and in some ways, it's more insidious because a figure like Obama, for instance, uh, becomes more effective as a brand uh, uh, and uh, oftentimes can mollify the left uh, through that rhetoric um, and the very legitimate fear of the proto-fascist movements that arise around figures like Trump or Boris Johnson. Johnson's a little different than Trump, actually. He's he's completely a creature of the oligarchic elite. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, Kamala Harris was, uh, Kamala, th these people are careerists. They know what systems they have to serve. Kamala Harris as attorney general in California was uh, a handmaiden of the police unions uh, and uh, was uh, obstructive to any kind of uh, real judicial or uh, certainly prison reform, uh, but that's of course how she got to be vice president. So it, it's a it's a species of colonialism when it just became too uh, a naked an assault for the Belgians to run the Congo. Uh, they realized that they had to find a puppet who was Congolese and black to do it for them. And you had that great uh, resistance leader, Patrice Lumumba, who arose and then was assassinated uh, largely through the efforts of French intelligence and the CIA. And then Mobutu, uh, who uh, was quite willing to sell out his own people. So that's a, that, that is a figure like Kamala Harris. That is a figure like Obama. These figures uh, uh, will uh, lend uh, both rhetorically and in the case of Kamala Harris 
in terms of uh, their gender or the color of their skin legitimacy uh, to this system as a kind of mask. But it's just an it's just an internal form of colonialism. It's not anything new. Sitting Bull was shot and killed uh, by uh, reservation police who were Lakota. Hmm. And so when we look at a situation where there's estimated to be about 10.6 million admissions to prison every year in the United States, where each prisoner is deemed to potentially be worth $60,000 around that, and that you have more people in prison today in the United States than are in the city of Philadelphia. You have to question, and you, you alluded to it before when you spoke of lobbyists you know, who benefit off that internal privatization of the prisons, who are the ultimate beneficiaries, aside from social control, but in terms of material uh, benefit, in terms of companies, in terms of CEOs, who are those material beneficiaries of the prison industrial complex? Right. So if if you're a young black man on the streets of Newark uh, and you're unemployed, uh, you're not generating money for the state. But as you correctly pointed out, if you're locked in a cage, you can generate 50 or $60,000 for prison contractors, for the guards, for uh, judges, for prosecutors, and then for that list of private companies that I mentioned before, the phone service companies, the food service companies. Uh, and these people have profited immensely. Our mark is actually based in Philadelphia. I live in Princeton, which is about an hour away. And uh, they're uh, staggering. I don't have the figures in front of me, but these are multi-billion dollar corporations. And if there was uh, social or political reform, uh, and especially prison reform, these people would lose uh, the uh, revenues that uh, are so lucrative. And so therefore, their lobbyists are writing the legislation to make sure uh, that these prisons, that these cells remain full, and they are full. Uh, so it, it is an entire industry in the same way that you have wars perpetuated in Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, uh, Libya. Now, of course, they're ratcheting up tensions with China uh, and pushing the uh, NATO to the borders of Russia, uh, be, uh, it's out of profit. It has nothing to do with national security. So you have Lockheed Martin and Raytheon and all, which by the way, have now gotten into the building of border walls and the control of migrants. So there are huge industries. Uh, uh, they, they, they not only uh, serve the war industry, but they uh, have cornered the market on all of the, the sensors and fences and facial recognition and drones and everything else that's used to uh, to go after migrants. And then, of course, you just had this horrible example. I can't remember the number. It was like 28 or something who, who just drowned. Uh, I mean, they were trying to see their family, get to their families. And it was so that's that's it. And in, in a world that in a kind of corporate corporatized world in a in a corporate state, uh, all of the institutions and laws and mechanisms are deformed to serve the interests of those profits and create a kind of corporate totalitarianism, uh, which is not exclusive to the United States, although we have peculiar characteristics in that we are a phenomenally violent country uh, and have been since our inception. 
Uh, of course, the UK was if you were in India or uh, you know any other part of the British colony. But we have the peculiar characteristic of having colonized internally uh, by from the moment we stepped on the shores of the United States, carrying out a genocide against. Native Americans, Australia, I think, also did that. So, uh, but that is in our DNA, and there, and uh, and so the level of violence in the United States, of course, we just had another school shooting, um, is makes it more volatile and more dangerous as the system seizes up uh, access to assault weapons are readily available. You can drive to a Walmart and buy one. Um, these are, I grew up in rural Maine where my family were all hunters. You don't use these guns for hunting. Uh, the caliber of the bullet is too small to take down a deer. I mean, unless you want to pepper the deer with 20 bullets or something. Um, they're, they're solely designed to kill people. So <clears throat> it, it, it is a product of corporate tyranny. And then we are seeing the kind of political and nihilistic blowback that comes with uh, a system of government that is seized by a particular cabal and renders uh, huge segments of its population in Marxian terms as surplus labor, a redundant labor, people who are, are just written off. And, and of course, the consequences of that are uh, have not anything that hasn't been shown throughout history. Uh, and uh, And the state uses harsher and harsher forms of control in order to maintain its hegemony. That's that's what we're watching. And the prison system is just part of that, a piece of that. Chris, I beg your pardon. Just one second. I'm going to be back. Just one hey. second. Hi, sorry about that. No problem. Um, it's interesting you mentioned the marriage between external and internal colonies. When we think about in Britain, the application of the sus laws to racialized communities in the 80s, a lot of this legislation had already been used in the 14 million miles parts of the 14 million miles of the planet that Britain had occupied, like India, in terms of vagrancy laws which were basically an excuse to shake down uh, people on the street when we also think about that marriage between arms companies and mechanisms like uh, the social control of prison you have the poppy which you may have heard of uh, to commemorate the industrialized murder um, of world war one in my view a needless war which never needed to happen the, the, the flower, the plastic imitation flower, which is used to commemorate it, and people in the public sphere are basically bullied into wearing in this country, is, of course, um, 
organized and sponsored largely by arms companies like BAE Systems and Thales, but it's actually manufactured by prison labor in this country. So the same logics are prevalent for sure. As you mentioned in the book, you saw in 1974, only one crime identified in federal law, which could lead to punishment by death. However, in 1994, through the Democrat president, uh, Bill Clinton, you saw that number increase to 66. Who benefits from the death penalty's existence in the United States? Well, let's be clear that the, the engine behind that was actually Joe Biden. Uh, and he used that as a huge uh, uh, kind of propaganda uh, uh, ploy within his own uh, senatorial campaigns and his own presidential ambitions because Biden has run for president, I can't remember, like four times or something. So uh, that was, uh, yes, it was Clinton, but it was primarily Biden. Uh, and who benefits from it? Well, it, it, is, a, it is a way to, uh, I would say, first and foremost, uh, we have to be clear that the state, in order to justify the, the mass incarceration of such large numbers of poor people, and of course, poor people of color, needs to demonize them. Uh, and that really began after the black power movements in the 60s and 70s, and in particular, the Attica prison uprising. Uh, and Heather Ann Thompson wrote a very fine book about this called Blood in the Water, which is the history of the Attica prison uprising and its consequences. Uh, so uh, the, by putting more police on the streets, which we know statistically doesn't actually reduce crime, by giving police military-grade weapons so that in Ferguson you have armored personnel carriers mounted with 50 caliber machine guns aimed at unarmed, peaceful protesters. By expanding uh, the death penalty, what you're doing is fueling this climate of fear and demonization, much like the war on terror, by the way, uh, which is then used <clears throat> to uh, further divert state resources uh, to this coercive uh, system, uh, which earns the kinds of profits, but you need to demonize them. Um, Muslims in the United States after 9-11 were uh, demonized in the same way um, and with the, for the same kinds of reasons. So that's why. Hmm. Um, you also, in a fantastic speech, which everyone should uh, check out at Rutgers, in a graduation speech for your students, some of your students, you actually say that they have given you more than you could ever give to them. Overall, what did this process teach you? Where did it take you from and where did it go? How did it leave its fingerprints on you and change you? Well, these are some of the most remarkable people I've ever met who have surmounted obstacles and which I think would have crushed most of us. I think very few of us would have been able to endure what they have endured and become who they have become. Uh, they are serious scholars. They turn their cells into libraries. Uh, and, and imagine earning 
uh, a BA degree and several of my students graduating summa cum laude from Rutgers University while locked in a cage uh, and humiliated and uh, suffering all of the environmental assaults of a prison, the constant noise, the humiliation, the degradation. Uh, it's quite remarkable. Uh, and I I'm not romantic about suffering. I saw a lot of it as a war correspondent. And it certainly can crush you and destroy you. Uh, but at the same time, I think for those people who achieve levels of um, transcendence or real integrity, Nelson Mandela comes to mind, uh, they kind of have to go through that road. Pat Flannery O'Connor talks about passing by the dragon. Uh, and sometimes the dragon destroys you. Um, but, but to become that kind of figure, um, you have to walk through that kind of hell. And they did. Uh, and they are, we're, you know, it's, I've taught in the prison now for, uh, I guess 12 years. And some of my students are getting out and those relationships are the most, some of the most important relationships I have, uh, because I didn't, I spent 20 years of my life outside the United States on the outer reaches of empire, which makes you an alien when you come back to the United States, uh, where even among the liberal class, there is uh, an acceptance of a pretended virtue or a pretended goodness that we don't have. Empires are about, and empires are the external expression of white supremacy, where you denigrate in racist terms those you occupy uh, plunder their resources and exploit uh, their bonded labor. And all of the mechanisms of control as internally uh, these forces uh, destroy, uh, uh, you know, they, they kind of cannibalize the host, then all of these mechanisms of control come back uh, to exert control uh, in the homeland, wholesale surveillance, uh, militarized drones, militarized police. All of this is quite common uh, if you go to the occupied West Bank or Gaza or Iraq or anywhere else. Uh, and uh, and these people have a, an understanding of uh, the kind of dark soul of empire and the dark soul of America. They understand white supremacy. They understand neoliberalism. Uh, they, they, they understand it because they've been victims of it and they're also highly intelligent. Um, so there's actually a kind of intellectual commonality that I have with them that is, and I have taught at Princeton, which is right up the street, that is very hard to find with Cornell West was one of the exceptions. He's not there anymore. Very hard to find within the, uh, academy. And I, I just want to be clear as Antonio Gramsci writes, uh, intellectuals exist at all stratas of society. Um, but, uh, of course, with a failed public school system in the United States, public being government school system in the United States, these people were never given an opportunity. So I, I just tell one little anecdote. I was walking down the street with two of my former students. Now, these are big guys. I mean, they, they call it the 400 club, which means they all bench over 400 pounds. One of them, is about he's about six eight. I think he's taller. I think he's one of those people who's so tall he cuts a few inches off. Uh, three hundred and ten pounds. So he graduates summa cum laude from Rutgers, and then he gets the first Harry S. Truman Fellowship 
of any student at the university, any student, in over a decade. And he goes to the UK and gets his master's degree in philosophy at the University of Cambridge. Uh, and I'm walking down the street with him and another student, and I said, I'm sure somebody's going, what, what are those two black guys walking with that dweeby white guy for? And I said, what they don't know is what I know, is that you go home at night and read books, and you're a nerd. You're nerds just like I am. Uh, and so I, because of my own personal experiences, uh, uh, I find within these students, um, you know, just a kind of, uh, not just a brilliance, but an integrity uh, and a courage and a strength um, that I am just, I admire uh, immensely. And in that speech, and I meant every word of it, that, uh, uh, you know, they, uh, I end the talk, which ends the book, actually. And uh, one of my students, Boris, a wonderful writer, uh, he says, uh, you know, that in the hood, when somebody do something for somebody, they want something. And I said, well, you know, you should know uh, that uh, what you've given me, I cannot quantify monetarily, that it's one of the most important uh, and precious things I possess. And that uh, is your friendship. Uh, and that makes me the most blessed among you. Uh, and, and that is true. And that is, uh, that's, you know, an incredible gift. And uh, one that I you know, cherish and is really the driving force behind writing that book to lift up these magnificent people who the rest of society has attempted to crush and destroy and and to this day often successfully demonizes. Beautiful. Um, on the mention of Cornell West, what is your estimation of what exactly happened to him within academia? Was it due to his support for the Palestinian cause? I know exactly what happened to him. <laughs> um, he he was at Harvard, and uh, the Israel lobby is immensely powerful at institutions like Harvard. Uh, they'll never say it. Uh, Cornell, like myself, is a very public supporter of the boycott, divestment, and sanction movement. Um, which the Israel lobby is working very successfully to criminalize support for that movement by passing state laws. I mean, it's ridiculous. Uh, you know, as if it's illegal for me to boycott products made uh, by settlers in the West Bank. I mean, under international law, they shouldn't even be there anyway. Uh, so, yeah, it was uh, there was a, a very uh, concerted, well-organized and well-funded campaign to get him out of Harvard. Hmm. On page 32 of the book, Kabir, who is a great part of the class, says, that's the problem with education. You figure out how the system works and you don't have anyone to talk to. What is happening to us as a civilization, culturally speaking? You've written in the past about the extent of illiteracy within the United States today. But how is the corporate culture, which is really... Um, ubiquitous today, affecting our faculties of critical thinking? By denying us an education two ways, degrading systems of education, turning them all into STEM. Um, the purpose of an education is learning how to think, not being taught what to think. Uh, it doesn't mean that uh, studying physics or anything else or math is not important. It is. 
but not at the expense of uh, learning how to think. And in a post-literate society, uh, you're just not going to get complex ideas from uh, YouTube or, God forbid, Twitter or anything else. Uh, if you're going to read uh, about how, for instance, capitalism works, you're going to have to plow at least through the first volume of Capital. I don't pretend it's an easy read. I mean, I struggled with it myself. Uh, you're going to have to read uh, Gramsci. Uh, you're going to have to read Rosa, Rosa Luxemburg. Uh, uh, you have to understand history because the dominant uh, ruling class is only going to tell you uh, the version of history that justifies and buttresses uh, their own power. Uh, they're never going to tell you your own story. Uh, you're going to have to be proactive. All of these corporate systems of information, uh, which largely disseminate images, which are emotionally appealing, but intellectually void, they're never going to tell you. You're, you're, you're going to have to read Eduardo Galliano or C.L.R. James or any of these, uh, Howard Zinn, any of Chom Noam Chomsky, these great writers who will explain the system to you. Uh, and that's what I worry about. I mean, I see your books behind you. My books are behind me, and that's only part of it. My entire house is a library. Uh, uh, because uh, the information is still there, but of course people don't read. Uh, and uh, and that's, again, kind of by design. So I tell my students in the prison, who uh, as we plow through this very rigorous college curriculum, that by the time we're done. You're going to be very lonely uh, because you're going to speak in a language uh, which is alien uh, to those people who haven't had the benefit of exploring systems of power and how they work. Uh, and we forget that in the old anarchist movement, the communist movement, the old labor movement, education was a fundamental part. Uh, workers, Emma Goldman writes about it. I mean, they'd spend 12 hours a day working in sweatshops in the Lower East Side, and then they'd go to anarchist uh, book clubs at night. And that is extremely important uh, because if we're passive recipients of information, uh, we're going to be denied both the understanding and the language by which we can describe and grasp our own reality. And that's by design. I mean, so in poor communities, uh, the schools are dysfunctional. Uh, at best, they will give students a kind of numerical literacy so they can work in a warehouse or behind a fast food counter, uh, but they're not going to educate them. Uh, and that's always true. You never want to educate the poor if you're the dominant ruling class. It's why uh, uh, enslaved people in the South, if it was found by slaveholders that they uh, had taught themselves to read, they would be killed. Uh, it, it, and Frederick Douglass writes about this. So uh, the, the, the whole purpose of power, malignant power, is to deny an education, uh, especially to the oppressed. And, uh, and so we have to understand that education is a key component of resistance because we can't resist what we don't understand. Uh, once we understand power and how it works, even if that power crushes us, that's a kind of protection. And, you know, there's a tremendous hostility to the college program among the prison guards, tremendous hostility. And it's hard to retain 
professors because they often treat the professors as if they're prisoners. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you don't get any academic uh, uh, kudos. kudos for teaching in a prison. You get academic kudos for going to conferences and writing boring peer-reviewed papers that no one reads and mm-hmm. uh, you know publishing books on arcane, tiny, marginal subjects that don't really matter. Uh, that's how you get promoted within the system. Uh, so, you know, we feel that, we feel that hostility as people who teach in the prison. Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. I recommend everyone watching this to read our class by Chris Hedges. Thank you so much. Hope to speak to you again and see you in London soon. I hope so, Kareem. Be good to see you in London. Take care. Be safe. Okay. Thanks for doing it, Kareem. It was good to see you. Good to see you too. Take care, Chris. Bye. Bye.